Episode of Evidence Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. We're going to talk about space tonight. The Earth is still in turmoil, uh, everything is still uncertain, lots of things are bad. So let's lift ourselves above it and talk about things in the vacuum of space. Now, unfortunately, it's also Halloween weekend, but given the weather and the COVIDs, clearly we're not going to be doing a lot of celebrating of Halloween this year, which is unfortunate because I really do like Halloween. Um, and I've done a couple of monster shows over the years that I've really enjoyed doing. And maybe sometime in November, I'll do a monsters show just for the heck of it. Um, and talk about some monsters that you may not have heard of before. And that I haven't talked about before. I really like monsters because they tell us a lot about what people think and how they expect the world to be. Because if you look at monsters from across different uh, civilizations and cultures, you often find a lot of similarities. And that's because humans are basically pretty similar. Uh, we always have different perspectives based on our culture, but deep down there are certain things that we all are afraid of and all think is out there waiting in the dark. Um, and so I think that stories about monsters and that sort of thing is really interesting as far as a cultural and uh, neurological uh, subject. But again, that's not what we're talking about tonight. We are talking about space because space is apolitical and at the moment, at least, <sighs> and lots of good things are happening out there. Lots of good things, weird things. So that is where we are going to go tonight. Um, so let's start out with some actually kind of exciting news. Uh, the Mars Insight heat probe, aka the mole, which we have talked about several times before on this program, has now successfully been buried in the Martian landscape. It's not yet as far down as they want it to be, but it's finally some good news. As the probe requires friction to be able to dig itself further into the ground, it is fine, finally having it surrounded by dirt with a little help from the lander's robotic arm is really encouraging. And so the mole is meant to dig down to a max depth of 10 feet. And once it's there, it's meant to take me temperature readings below the surface of the Martian landscape. Now, the mission began back in November of 2018. That's when the lander first reached its destination at Elysium Planitia. But the mole has been plagued with difficulties as it barely scratched the surface of the ground and at one point was even spit back out onto the surface from the small hole it had managed to drill. NASA, NASA has blamed Duracrust, a cement-like mixture in which granules stick together. 
For a while, the arm had other things it needed to do rather than work on the mole, but it recently went back to work, and we can now say that the mole is fully buried, with only the ribbon cable sticking out of the ground. Now, that cable is something that they also need to get worked into the underground because it's covered in temperature sensors designed to measure the heat flow beneath the crust. I'm very glad we were able to recover from the unexpected pop-out event we experienced and get the mole deeper than it's ever been, explained Troy Hudson, a JPL engineer who's leading this effort, in a statement from NASA. The next step is to have the arm with its scoop pile more dirt on top and pack it down in order to create a nice seal for the probe to engage with friction. Now, unfortunately, this process will take several months, and so that's even before the probe can try to go further below. Now, Hudson notes that they want to make sure that there's enough soil on top of the mole to enable it to dig on its own without any assistance from the arm. But, of course, we need to get to that point first. And so, as with all probes that are far away, uh, we can't just walk up to it and, uh, you know, take a shovel to it. We need to send commands to a small arm that is on the surface of Mars that we aren't always in contact with in order to do these kinds of maneuvers. So it takes a while. And especially since it wasn't designed to do this at all. And that's one of the cool things is that they were able to use this arm, which was never meant to have to do this kind of work, to do it. And I think that's really cool because, again, it's one of those places where NASA is really hitting it out of the ballpark as far as engineering of its landers and all of its spacecraft are just mostly rock stars. Uh, basically, if they survive the landing or if they survive getting to where they're going, they're pretty much hitting it all out of the ballpark all the time. Now, unfortunately, this doesn't mean that we are assured that this will be successful. There may turn out to be more pockets created by the less than helpful soil, which may once again reduce the amount of friction available. But it's another glimmer of hope and a nice reminder that NASA works hard at using its resources to the utmost, uh, which is nice to know because space is cool and space is important for robots. Um, there was actually a discussion on one of the articles about that where someone said, wouldn't it be great if we just had a human who could go and dig a little hole and put it into? But the problem with humans being on Mars is that there's a lot of radiation there. And I know a lot of people talk about terraforming Mars in pie in the sky, uh, sorts of, um, talk, but that doesn't get rid of the problem of radiation, radiation from the sun hitting the surface of Mars. In order to be able to mitigate that, we would need to find some way to restart the uh, core of Mars and get it moving again in a way like our 
molten core does, where it's rotating and creating a magnetic field that then causes that radiation to be shunted around the planet rather than down onto the surface of it. And so even though I know people are really excited about the prospect of humans going into space, I just always think robots are better. We've had this argument, though. I'm sure that you have your opinions. I'm sure some of you are very frustrated by my insistence upon this, but um, that's just my opinion. Okay, um, let us talk about other good space-related news. NASA's OSIRIS-REx has successfully touched the asteroid Bennu, and the sample has been successfully stowed in the spacecraft's Sample Return Capsule, or SRC. The capsule is now closed and ends the most challenging phase of the mission. This achievement by OSIRIS-REx on behalf of NASA and the world has lifted our vision to the higher things we can achieve together as teams and nations, said, NASA's admin, said NASA Administrator and Chief Cheerleader Jim Bridenstein. Uh, together, a team comprised, uh, t- together, a team comprising industry, academia, and international partners, and a talented and diverse team of NASA employees with all types of expertise have put us on course to vastly increase our collection on Earth of samples from space. Samples like this are going to transform what we know about our universe and ourselves, which is at the base of all NASA's endeavors. So that's the uh, the sound bite <laughs> portion of this. Uh, not that he's wrong. It's just um, every time there's a quote from Jim Bridenstine, I just always think, or Bridenstine, um, I always think of cheerleaders, which isn't just which isn't bad. I think NASA should have cheerleaders. Uh, <laughs> they're certainly doing a lot of good things, uh, and so yeah, why not? Okay. So, because of how far away the asteroid is, the researchers had to spend two days working around the clock to carry out the stowage procedures, which actually, they started working on the prep for that even last weekend. And so, this was an unusual situation because the entire procedure needed to be monitored and controlled, with each step being dependent on telemetry and imagery from previous steps. And given the fact that there is a more than 18.5 minute delay for signals traveling each way, it took a bit of time. And so throughout the process, the team continually assessed the touch and go sample acquisition mechanisms or tag SAMs wrist alignment to ensure that the collector head was being properly placed into the SRC. So basically the tag SAM was at the end of a arm. And so what they had to do was maneuver the arm around to the SRC in order to put the end of it into the SRC. And then once it was closed off, they detached the arm so that just the sample head was left in the SRC. And so they also kept an eye out for leaking particles, which might hinder the stowage process. And so the Stokam 
images showed that there was a bit of leakage, but nothing to damage the stowing process. And the researchers are sure that there is plenty of material in the capsule. In fact, that's actually a bit of, was a bit of a problem. Given the complexity of the process to place the sample collector head onto the capture ring, we expected that it would take a few attempts to get it into the perfect position, said Rich Burns, OSIRIS-REx project manager at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Fortunately, the head was captured on the first try, which allowed us to expeditiously execute the stow procedure. And so the stowage process was actually supposed to be scheduled for next month, but the timetable was moved up because so much material was gathered in the maneuver, well over two ounces, and there was actually danger of the sample leaking out as it looked like some of the larger pebbles uh, or rocks had wedged open a mylar flap designed to keep the sample inside the collector and so they were worried about it leaking out. Now, the next step is to begin the journey home. The spaceship will begin to return, will begin the Earth return cruise as early as perhaps March 2021, and the spacecraft is targeting delivery of the SRC for September 24th, 2023. Now, hopefully everything will continue to go well, and... They won't hit any space junk, as we've talked about recently, uh, on their way back, and we'll be able to have a piece of an asteroid, or several tiny, small bits of an asteroid, I should say, brought back to space, brought back to Earth from space, which, you know, is pretty cool. One has to say, uh, this is pretty cool to be able to go out to an asteroid that is millions of miles away from us and come back with material. That's pretty spectacular. Um, and so, yeah, good for NASA. <laughs> now, of course, NASA isn't the only major player in the space game. China's Chang'e 4 spacecraft have awoken for another lunar day on the far side of the moon. The mission consists of both a lander, uh, robot, and a rover, and it's the first to have made a soft landing on the far side of the moon. So we've crashed things onto the far side of the moon, uh, which doesn't count. <laughs> this was the first time that someone actually managed to land something that then continued to work on the far side of the moon. <laughs> so the mission consists of both a lander and a rover, uh, again, and so they touched down on January 3rd, 2019, and since then, the two robots have returned gigabytes of scientific data and images from the von Karman crater as they've explored during the local day and hibernated during the roughly 14 Earth day-long lunar nights. And so the lander has been doing such good work that the International Astro Astronautical Federation chose to award the World Space Award to three of the Chang'e-4's leaders, Yu Dengyun, Sun Zhezhu, and Wu Wiren, 
were lauded earlier this month at an online congress where you, the deputy designer-in-chief of China's Lunar Exploration Program, delivered, delivered a highlight lecture. The talk noted several breakthroughs which made the mission possible, including demonstrating the first continuous reliable communication with the far side of the moon using the Kuei-Kiao relay satellite. Now, the satellite orbits a special gravitationally stable point beyond the moon, which allows it to maintain line of sight with both the ground station on Earth and the spacecraft on the moon's surface to facilitate communications. They also developed capabilities for autonomous, high-precision landing in complex terrain, like that found on the far side of the moon. And the area available for the landing was just 5% of that of its predecessor. So, again, we keep getting these landers that have to be very precise in how they land. And so we've made a lot of progress in figuring out how to do that. How can we get these, you know, autonomous vehicles to be able to land in very small areas with little margin of error? And so we all seem to be doing pretty good at that. You also spoke of breakthroughs in ground control, launch systems, and the Longjiang-2 microsatellites, which, among other feats, used independent propulsion to enter lunar orbit. And also, uh, you may have heard of this one, they actually imaged a solar eclipse in South America from the moon. So that's pretty cool. You also revealed that the first radioisotope thermoelectric generator, which is a kind of nuclear battery developed in China, was launched aboard the craft and performed well. So a lot of um, spacecraft that when they go up, they actually are powered by, uh, by batteries that have radioactive material in them. Um, so that's a sort of a tried and true uh, power source for um, a lot of these objects. Um, and so that's, of course, part of the reason why sometimes you don't want to have them come back to Earth if they're up in Earth orbit. But I suspect they probably don't use uh, nuclear um, propulsion or nuclear energy stores in crafts that are going to be in low Earth orbit because of obviously the danger. I think it's mostly for those landers that are going very far off or the probes, I should say, that are going very far off into the far reaches of the solar system where having a, um, Having solar panels just isn't going to cut it, because as you get farther and farther away from the sun, then the amount of sunlight you are being um, hit with decreases uh, pretty rapidly. And so you need to have something other than solar panels. And so uh, he also highlighted some of the science that has been discovered so far, including insights into the lunar subsurface structure using penetrating radar, potential radiation doses astronauts will encounter on the moon, and the composition of materials discovered by the rover. And so the mission is also taking unprecedented low-frequency radio astronomy measurements. The mission consists of the Chang'e 4's robot, 
and the U2 and the U22 rover. Now the rover has been traveling northwest from the landing site and has been heading for a rock on the rim of a nearby crater for analysis with a spectrometer. And so this was this last batch of data was the seventh uh, batch of scientific data from the mission, and it was released on no- October 9th, and it inc- including from the lander's low-frequency astronomy instrument and the U-2-2s, it's very hard to say, U-2-2s rover radar, spectrometer, and its panoramic camera. And so the Chang'e 4 was actually originally a backup to the Chang'e 3, which successfully landed in Mare Imbrium in 2013. And that mission lander and one of its science payloads has actually remained operational for nearly seven years on the lunar surface. (sighs) It is really kind of frustrating to me to think about how much more we could be doing if the whole world worked together on these sorts of things instead of different people working on them in different silos due to other uh, considerations. But let's not dwell on that. Let's just talk about the fact that all of these um, space programs in all places across the world are doing great things um, and are really working hard to discover more about what is outside of our little sphere of influence. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about some more, uh, some space stuff that doesn't have to do specifically with uh, landers or probes or anything like that. Let's talk about some more uh, holistic uh, space stories. And, you know, things where we're working with our old friends' telescopes uh, and things like that, rather than sending robots and landers and all sorts of things out. So uh, first, we're going to start out with what is kind of a bit of a Halloween horror story. Uh, Apparently, researchers have located an Earth-sized planet plowing through the galaxy, untethered to any sun or other gravitational anchor. And so scientists believe that there are probably billions of free-floating or rogue planets that should be whizzing through the Milky Way, but only a few supergiant planets from between 2 to 40 times the mass of Jupiter have been found so far. And so, uh, you know, that's Very cool and also a little bit terrifying because there's no telling if a rogue planet is going to be heading our way anytime soon. And as we've had a couple of really fairly close calls recently um, with asteroids and other objects from space, um, we're pretty vulnerable to being hit by things here. Um, we don't have an escape plan, and we also don't have great tracking of near-Earth objects necessarily. So a little bit of uh, the the element of Halloween horror here. Um, a little bit more the sci-fi horror of the 50s, but still. Um, 
actually an infinitesimally small chance that this could actually be a problem. Um, but, you know, we've got a lot of other things to worry about right now uh, besides rogue planets. But let's talk about them nonetheless. So scientists believe, again, that there's probably billions of them. And so they actually think they've detected something very different from those massive, supergiant Jupiter-sized planets. A tiny planet, roughly the mass of Earth, is flying free through the Milky Way. The discovery, reported yesterday, the 29th of October, in the astrophysical journal Letters, may represent the smallest rogue planet to ever be discovered and could help prove a long-standing cosmic theory, which suggests that some objects may be that these objects may be some of the most common objects in the galaxy. And so apparently, rogue, Earth-sized planets could be zipping through the galaxy, uh, and we currently don't have a good way to find them. Again, little scary. The odds of detecting such a low-mass object are extremely low, lead study author Peshemek Moroz, a postdoctoral scholar at the University Institute at the California Institute of Technology, uh, noted, either we were very lucky or such objects are very common in the Milky Way. They may be as common as stars. Now, most of the time, we can only find exoplanets because of the light from their star. If they're too small or too distant, we can detect them via the slight gravitational pull the planet will exert on its host star or by the dip of luminosity of a star as the planet passes in front of it or transits. So you may have heard about uh, scientists referring to planetary wobble, and that wobble is usually what they're using to detect uh, exoplanets um, around the star. So you get the star will have a little bit of a wobble, and that's from the push and pull interactions with the, the exoplanet. Now, of course, rogue planets, obviously, can't be detected using any of these means. Instead, they're detected using gravitational lensing. It's part of Einstein's theory of general relativity, which states that objects like a planet or more massive objects will act as a cosmic magnifying glass that will temporarily bend the light of objects behind it from Earth's perspective. So remember, the idea that Einstein had is that uh, space-time is more like fabric than it is a static um, object. And so things can create dips in that fabric, which are then sort of momentary, in this case, uh, gravity wells, where that light is then distorted around it. If a massive object passes between an Earth-based observer and a distant source star, its gravity may deflect and focus light from the source, Morose explained in a statement. The observer will measure a short brightening of the source star. Now, the smaller the light-bending object is, the briefer the star's perceived brightening will be. A planet several times the mass of Jupiter might have an effect that lasts a few days, but the mass of Earth will brighten the source star for only a few hours, or less. This is called microlensing. 
Chances of observing microlensing are extremely slim, Rose added in the statement. If we observe only one source star, we would have to wait almost a million years to see the source being microlensed. However, Moroz and his colleagues weren't looking at just one star, but hundreds of millions of them, using the Optical Gravitational Lensing Experiment, or OGLE, a star survey, a star survey centered at the University of Warsaw, uh, which has discovered at least 17 exoplanets since 1992. And so, while gazing into the center of the Milky Way, they looked for any signs of microlensing. In June 2016, they witnessed the shortest microlensing event ever seen. Just 42 minutes of brightening lit up a star roughly 27,000 light years away in the densest part of the galaxy. They calculated that the object was not in the gravitational hold of any star or gravity well object within eight astronomical units, suggesting that it was a wandering planet ejected from its home solar system by a brush with a much more dense object. Now, depending on how far away the rogue planet is, it's between half and one Earth mass. Regardless, it would be the lowest mass rogue planet ever detected, and a huge milestone for the science of planet formation. Theories of planet formation have predicted that the majority of free-floating planets should be Earth mass or smaller, but this is the first time that we could find such a low-mass planet, Murrow said. It's really amazing that Einstein's theory allows us to to detect a tiny piece of rock floating in the galaxy. Study co-author Radek Pileski of the University of Warsaw, notes that more such relatively tiny rocks may soon follow. Because future planet-hunting telescopes like NASA's Nancy Grace Ruman Space Telescope, scheduled to launch in the mid-2020s, will replace the nearly 30-year-old OGLE experiment. So we're definitely going to be getting better eyes into this region of the universe or of the galaxy. And so, if they are as common as we think, they should soon be able to be spotted. Okay, it is time for us to take a break, and when we come back, we will talk about a different part of Einstein's theory of gravity. And so, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the LIGO-Virgo collaboration, so do stay tuned for that. Coming up. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov/pertussis/pregnant. That's pertussis. P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. 
Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Your voice, your vote. In our democracy, they matter and make our community and our country stronger. So make yours count. Get registered, learn the issues, know the candidates, and vote by or on November 3rd. Visit vote411.org for registration and election information. This message is furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. So as promised, we're going to talk about a different part of Einstein's theory of gravity, or of relativity. Just five years ago, we had never detected a gravitational wave predicted by Einstein. It was one of those kind of things that we knew should be there, but we couldn't yet detect Uh, Einstein did a lot of that. Uh, He was definitely a just singular human being. Um, And so uh, in 2019, though, the LIGO-Virgo collaboration detected in a six-month period between April 1st and October 1st an average of 1.5 gravitational wave events per week taking it up to a grand total of 39 events during that time period. The upgraded LIGO and Virgo 
interferometers detect shock waves rippling out across space-time from massive collisions between neutron stars or black holes. Overall, the Gravitational Wave Transient Catalog 2, or GWTC2, now boasts 50 such events. And so we now have the most complete census of black holes, including not only those that had never been detected before, but has revealed previously unplumbed depths of the evolution and afterlife of binary stars. We also found uh, several other kinds of black holes, including sort of medium-sized black holes. And so, yeah, lots of interesting and cool stuff. Gravitational wave astronomy is revolutionary, revealing to us the hidden lives of black holes and neutron stars, said astronomer Christopher Berry of Northwestern University, a member of the LIGO Scientific Collaboration. In just five years, we have gone from not knowing that binary black holes exist to having a catalog of over 40. Now, the third observing run has yielded more discoveries than ever before. Combining them with earlier discoveries paints beautiful pictures, paints a beautiful picture of the universe's rich variety of binaries. Now, several remarkable detection events have been catalogued. The events were catalogued originally by their detection date. So, for instance, GW190412 was a gravity wave detected on the 12th of April 2019. This particular event was the first time two black holes of extremely unequal masses collided. Previously, all of the detections had been of equal or mostly equal masses in proportion. GW190425 is thought to be from a collision between two neutron stars, only the second ever to be detected. GW190521 confirmed the existence of the middleweight class of black holes between those of stellar mass and the supermassive behemoths. And in fact, they are actually having to add the time stamp to these gravity wave names because there have been so many of them and they're, you know, going forward in time that you might get confused because you might see a number that is very similar. So yeah, they have gone from zero to a hundred or zero to 50, I should say, um, in extraordinarily short amount of time technologically. And so very exciting and very cool. So far, LIGO and Virgo's third observation run has yielded many surprises, said astronomer Maya Fishback of Northwestern University and the LIGO Scientific uh, Consortium. After the second observing run, I thought we'd see I thought we'd seen the whole spectrum of binary black holes, but the landscape of black holes is much richer and more varied than I imagined. I'm excited to see what future observations will teach us. Which is very cool, um, because we used to have a really hard time finding black holes, and now we're finding them everywhere, uh, thanks to the detection via gravity waves. 
And so, yeah, we've got a lot more knowledge of black holes than we ever did before. And they're still pretty weird. Um, not going to lie. Black holes are still a weird thing, but we're learning more about them all the time. Um, so maybe someday we actually will be able to figure out what's going on there. And it might be some sort of crazy, weird physics thing, because a lot of physics is deeply unintuitive. <laughs> um, and so that's just how physics rolls. Um, and so... Who knows what we're going to find out as we keep moving forward and getting better at detecting gravity waves and continue to detect them. Okay, let's circle back to exoplanets. Last month, astronomers announced the discovery of LTT 9779b, which is just 260 light years away. Now, for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to call it LTT for the rest of the story. And so it was pegged as an object to be followed up on because of its curious atmosphere. Now, LTT is slightly bigger than Neptune and orbits a sun-like star, which seems rather dull, uh, frankly. <laughs> um, neither of those things is particularly exciting, but it has two really weird aspects. First, it's super close to its star. In fact, it orbits once every 19 hours, and despite being so close to its parent star, it has a substantial atmosphere, which is weird because one would expect that it would have been stripped off by the gravitational interactions with the sun. Now, infrared observations collected by the now, uh, technically defunct, but really mostly just retired, uh, Spitzer Space Telescope included data about the planet's host star, and that data has now been analyzed. And so there are two papers that are describing this data. In the first paper, a team led by astronomer Ian Crossfield of the University of Kansas described the planet's temperature profile. The second paper, a team a team in the second paper, a team led by astronomer Diana Dragomir of the University of New Mexico, has described the exoplanet's atmosphere. For the first time, we measured the light coming from this planet that shouldn't exist, Crossfield said. This planet is so intensely irradiated by its star that its temperature is over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and its atmosphere could have evaporated entirely. Yet, our Spitzer observations show us its atmosphere via the infrared light the planet emits. And so his team studied the exoplanet's phase curve in infrared light. So basically, thermal energy is admitted as infrared radiation, and so light in this wavelength can allow us to measure the temperature of cosmic objects, despite their uh, being extremely far away from us. Far, far away. <laughs> Uh, and that's one of those things I always try and remind people about exoplanets. You know, some of these exoplanets are really cool, and some of them have even been described as potentially Earth-like. But again, they're still extremely far away. Um, and until we find some way to travel uh, via either near uh, light speed or via some sort of stasis where... It's a ship that everybody basically goes into stasis and 
everybody's woken up when we get there. Um, though, how many science fiction horror movies have we watched based on that idea? Um, unless we develop one of those things, we're not going to get into any exoplanets. Um, so very cool to observe, but definitely don't consider them a, uh, exit ticket from the earth anytime soon. Uh, not that we shouldn't try, just saying we're not there yet by any stretch of the imagination. And so, basically, luckily for our observations, the system is oriented in such a way that the plane passes between us and the star, which gives us a clear broadside view of both of the planet's night and day sides. So, in order to calculate the temperature, they used the changing light of the overall system as LTT orbits. Now, we've been able to determine that the hottest time of day on the planet is actually at noon. On Earth, it's actually a few hours after noon, because the heat enters Earth's atmosphere faster than it radiates back out into space, which means that the heat keeps accumulating during those hours when the sun is, mostly, is most directly overhead. This difference allows researchers to make some hypotheses about the atmosphere of LTT. The planet is much cooler than we expected, which suggests that it is reflecting away much of the incident starlight that hits it, presumably due to dayside clouds, said astronomer Nicholas Cowan of the Institute for Research on Exoplanets, or IREX, and McGill University. The planet also doesn't transport much heat to its night side, but we think we understand that. The starlight that is absorbed is likely absorbed high in the atmosphere, from whence the energy is quickly radiated back to space. So basically, what's happening there is that it's getting a lot of heat, but because it has a lot of cloud cover, a lot of that heat is being pushed back out into the surrounding space, and it's not even getting filtering down into the lower atmosphere. Um, and so it's definitely something that is different from uh, the Earth, obviously. Now, Dragomir and her colleagues focused on examining secondary eclipses. This is where this planet goes behind the star. This can help researchers understand the thermal structure of the exoplanet's atmosphere. Hot Neptunes are rare, and one in such an extreme environment as this one is difficult to explain because its mass isn't large enough to hold on to the atmosphere for very long, Dragomir said. So how did it manage? LTT 9779b has us scratching our heads, but the fact that it has an atmosphere gives us a rare way to investigate this type of planet, so we decided to probe it with another telescope. They used both the Spitzer's, Spitzer Telescope's secondary eclipse data and data from, the Na from NASA's TESS, which was actually deployed specifically to hunt for exoplanets. This allowed them to attain emission spectrum from LTT's atmosphere. They found what they think is an abundance of carbon monoxide. This isn't particularly surprising for a planet this hot, as hot Jupiters have been found to have carbon monoxide and also circled this, their stars very closely. 
but those are much more massive than hot Neptunes, which shouldn't have enough mass to be able to retain such an atmosphere. Now, the findings of carbon monoxide could help us explain how this planet formed and has been able to retain its atmosphere. But it also may have started out as a hot Jupiter and has been shedding its atmosphere. And so researchers on planets, research on planets like this will help us get a better idea will help us get better at probing the atmospheres of potentially habitable worlds. If anyone is going to believe what astronomers say about finding signs of life or oxygen on other worlds, we're going to have to show we can actually do it right on the easy stuff first, Crossfield sense. In that sense, these bigger, hotter planets like LTT 9779b act like training wheels and show that we actually know what we're doing and can get everything right. So that's pretty cool. I approve of that wholeheartedly. Um, I definitely think that it is important for them to be able to do that sort of thing, to be able to say, we can tell what's going on here. And because we can tell what's going on here, we should be able to take that knowledge and apply it to places where the information is a lot more interesting to us. So uh, even though a hot Neptune with so much atmosphere so close to a sun is weird, we're not going to try and uh, find signs of life there because it's pretty much uh, it, from what we know of what life is and can be, it probably wouldn't be able to be sustained on a planet like that. But that doesn't mean that studying those planets isn't important. And so we definitely have to figure out more about these planets, mostly because also they're a lot easier to detect. Because again, as we've been talking about all night, the bigger an object is, the easier it is to image. But let's uh, move closer to home. Let's come back into our home solar system and talk about Saturn's moon Titan. Now, Titan is already a weird place. I can't wait for us to send probes there, which we're going to do later on in the uh, decade, hopefully. But things there got even a little bit weirder recently. Astronomers have detected cyclopropenidine, propelidine, C3H2 in the atmosphere, which represents an extremely rare carbon-based molecule that is usually considered so reactive that it can only exist on Earth in a laboratory. So basically, you have to have it trapped in something where it can't get at other molecules in order to combine with them because it's so reactive, which means basically it's constantly looking to combine with other elements, with other molecules in order to create something new. And so the only way to have it on Earth is to isolate it in a way that doesn't let it combine with other things. And so it's so rare, it's never before been detected in the atmosphere of any stellar object. The only place that we know it that it's stable is in interstellar space, the cold void. And so C3H2 is a ring molecule. And so the three carbon atoms link together, technically in a triangle, but it would be a ring if there were more carbon atoms. Uh, so others in other ring molecules have more carbon atoms and form rings. 
And so such ring molecules are the base for nucleobases of DNA and RNA. So it may just be a building block for more complex organic molecules, which could eventually lead to a form of life. Now, of course, there's a lot of eventuallys in that and a lot of places where it can go off the rails. Um, but, you know, again, we're, so, we're looking for any signs that there could be possibly life somewhere. And we've already thought the Titan was a pretty good place to look. We think of Titan as a real-life laboratory where we can see similar chemistry to that of ancient Earth when life was taking hold here, said astrobiologist Melissa Trainer of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, one of the chief scientists set to investigate the moon in the upcoming Dragonfly mission, which is launching in 2027. Uh, can't come fast enough, as far as I'm concerned. I'm so interested in Titan. <laughs> so... We'll be looking for bigger molecules than C3H2, but we need to know what's happening in the atmosphere to understand the chemical reactions that lead complex organic molecules to form and rain down on the surface. Now, C3H2, which NASA researchers even call a, quote, very weird little molecule, unquote, is again quite reactive, which means it easily combines with other molecules to create new compacts. Again, it's only in the vastness of interstellar space, where very cold molecules are very few and far between, where it can maintain its own identity. So we talk about the vacuum of space and how there's nothing in space. Well, it's not really nothing. There are definitely little bits and bobs of um, matter there. They're just very far away from one another. Now, of course, Titan is not exactly interstellar space. It's very wet, with hydrocarbon lakes, hydrocarbon clouds, a majority nitrogen atmosphere, with a bit of methane, which is four times thicker than the Earth's atmosphere. And under the surface, scientists believe there's a huge ocean of salt water, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> the signature of psychopropyladine was discovered in 2016 by Connor Nixon, a planetary scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, using the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, or the ALMA, in Chile. Now, while probing the moon's atmosphere for organic molecules, the mo the mo the molecule was found in the wispy upper atmosphere, and it's likely that this is what contributed to the molecule's survival, but it still doesn't explain why it was found on Titan and nowhere else. When I realized I was looking at cyclopropylidine, my first thought was, well, this is really unexpected, Nixon said. Titan is quite unique in our solar system. It has proved to be a treasure trove of new molecules. Now, as noted, C3H2 is a ring molecule, and the smaller the molecule, the more reactive it is. The cyclic nature of them opens up this extra branch of chemistry that allows you to build these biologically important molecules, said astrobiologist Alexander Thelen of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center again. <laughs> Previously, benzene C6H6 was the smallest hydrocarbon ring molecule found in any atmosphere. Nitrogen and methane in the atmosphere are broken down by sunlight and so can, can trigger lots of chemical reactions that might, just might, lead to life. We're trying to figure out if Titan is habitable, said geologist Rosalind Lopez, 
of NASA's JPL. So we want to know what compounds from the atmosphere get to the surface and then whether that material can get through the ice crust to the ocean below, because we think the ocean is where the habitable conditions are. And so figuring out how these compounds fit into the atmosphere is an important process for researching where there might be signs of life. And so let us hope that that probe to be sent out at the end of the decade will find something interesting. I'm really looking forward to that. I might have mentioned, um, I cannot wait to see what is there. I don't care if there's nothing. I'm still going to be very excited. Um, I will not be disapp disappointed if it turns out just to be a ocean with weird, uh, different, uh, architectural, um, substances, because of course there's a lot of frozen methane and things like that. Um, you know, hydrocarbon lakes, it's not exactly, like Earth in any way, shape, or form, but I'm very excited to see what it will be like. And so, yeah, um, I'm very excited about space, uh, even though, as longtime listeners will know, I still am Team Ocean when it comes to uh, things we should be exploring if we want to know more about how to save humanity. Um, I think the ocean is right here and it's a lot easier to live in the ocean than it is to live on another planet. I'm just saying, but longtime listeners have heard this a lot, so I'm not going to belabor the point. Um, <laughs> okay, that's all we have from space tonight. Uh, do come back for more Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.